The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Some kind of love arrived. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Well, I'll be chatting with Chen in just a few minutes to get his latest views on the markets and to see if there's anything specifically that uh, sort of really turns him on right now. Uh, I'm sure there is. Chen is always finding new things to invest in, and uh, I might say not just invest in, but invest in successfully. That's why he's been able to turn $5,400 in his wife's IRA in January of 2003 to over $1.1 million at the end of this last month. So Chen is a featured uh, guest of ours almost every week. He always has something very interesting to say. You're going to want to be here in just a couple of minutes to, to listen to Chen. I might mention that we have also uh, a one-time only introductory subscription to all three newsletters, uh, lower-priced introductory subscriptions to Chen's letter, Roger Wiegand's letter, as well as my own uh, letter. Mine is a three-month trial. Uh, the others are two months, but uh, call Claudio Bossi to learn more about that at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. Or go to our website at miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. You are making this the number one show on the America on the Voice America Business Channel, uh, and our numbers are growing almost every month. We have a big jump up in our numbers, so you're telling your friends. We have a lot of very fascinating guests on our show. Really, the guests are the ones that take the credit. Certainly, it's not me. It's the people that we have on this show that are very, very interesting. Certainly, Chen with his investment ideas, but we have always some very interesting, sometimes uh, eccentric characters coming on this show. Eccentricity makes life interesting, I think. Uh, it's always good to examine ideas from people that have different ideas than your own 
And that's what this show is about to a great extent. It's about trying to get to the bottom of the truth. And I have sort of a, a philosophy about that. I think that if you stick with the conservative uh, thought process, you're going to miss a lot of truth because the conventional wisdom likes to protect its, its position in society. And so sometimes the truth is found out in the wings somewhere, sometimes out on the left, sometimes out on the right from some other directions. But today we have a very fascinating guest. His name is a young attorney from California, Bill Rounds. He's going to be with us to tell us how Americans can vanish if they wish to do so. Well, I'm not interested in vanishing, but maybe a little more privacy wouldn't be a bad thing in this day and age when we have more and more threats from the Internet and other uh, forms of technology that can pry into our personal lives. Somewhat less spectacular, but no less interesting and, and important, in my view. Uh, in about a half an hour, we're going to talk to Adrian Day. He's an analyst. Uh, Adrian will join me to talk about his new book, Investing in Resources, How to Profit from the Outsized potential and avoid the risks. Adrian Day is a uh, well-acclaimed, highly acclaimed, uh, experienced money manager, and I'm sure he's going to have some very important things to tell us, as, uh, as always. Well, one of the pleasures of hosting this show is also our sponsors. You know, normally sponsors are just somebody you got to have around so you can stay on the air, but sponsors, in our case, are very much related to the content of this program. Our program is about... Uh, protecting our wealth. It's really about trying to find out what's really going on in the economy so that we can protect our wealth. And what's really going on in our economy is we're debasing our currency so that money, paper money, is becoming worth less all the time. Well, our sponsors help you to protect your wealth. Uh, they are finding real money. They're finding real wealth in the ground, mostly gold and some silver mining companies. So it's always a pleasure to have uh, to be able to talk to one or two of those uh, CEOs of these companies, and uh, our sponsors are afforded that uh, that opportunity. Uh, today, uh, a little bit later, we're going to be talking to, actually just in a few minutes, we're going to be talking to Brian Kerwin. He's the president and CEO of American Bonanza. Uh, they are a company that will soon be producing gold from southwest Arizona. And in the second hour of today's show, after we talk to uh, our attorney, Bill Rounds, uh, we're going to be talking to Kim Harris. She is the CEO uh, and president of Midlands Minerals. That's a company that is uh, moving towards production in Ghana, West Africa. I should uh, mention, before we go any further, again, I want to thank our sponsors who make this show financially viable. Uh, the sponsors for the first hour of today's show are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, American Bonanza, Palangio Exploration, Millrock Resources, Revolution Resources, and Uranium Energy. Well, before we talk to Brian Kerwin, I do have with me Chen Lin, uh, and Chen, I'm sure, has some very interesting things to tell us again, so welcome, Chen, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Chen, uh, really good to have you, as always, because, as I say, you usually have some insights that are not found on CNBC. You can't find them in the mainstream press. That's why you've been able to do so well. You're able to think outside of the box and get to the bottom of a lot of stories. One of the industries that you were perhaps the first one around to pick up on, and then not too long after that, Goldman Sachs figured it out, but you had it first. That was the paper pulp industry. You still like the paper pulp industry. Chen, why? Because there's a discontinue between supply and demand. Uh, basically, demand is increasing globally around 5-10% each year. Okay, and, uh, and people moving to cities, you know, from countryside to city, they generally demand more paper, like uh, napkins, tissues, and uh, also diapers, and so on and so forth. 
So, uh, but because of 2008 financial crisis, there's no new uh, pulp mill being built. Just, just no more new more pulp mill until maybe 2013 at the earliest. So there's a huge window of opportunities for the existing pulp maker to make a lot of money and strengthen their balance sheet, and I think will carry shareholder along as well. Chen, what have you seen in the way of paper pulp prices? Have they gone up dramatically since you started following them? Yeah, I, I started following actually right after the second day after Chile earthquake, when I realized the earthquake actually hit center of Chile, which is a paper pulp industry versus the copper industry. At that time, actually, after Chile earthquake, copper jumped, which is unusual because copper is into the north, so Chile is very long, and there, there wasn't you know much damage, but pulp was a huge damage, and pulp, price spike. So I was able to ride that wave and, you know, made, made myself, uh, hopefully my subscribers, a lot of money on the way. And I, I hold on to some of the pop stock. I sold some for a very nice profit. And I hold on to some, and I still like the industry. Today, one of the pop st- company report earning, that's Mercer International. This is a $6 company. It was $5 yesterday, and then they earned over $1 in last quarter alone. You can mm. imagine how much, you know, uh, leverage they have on, on those power price. It's just incredible. So, Chen, they earned $1 for the quarter. They're selling at $5 or $6 today, you say. Uh, can you annual, annualize that? Uh, do you think that a dollar per quarter will be learn, earned over the next three quarters, for example, so that they earn $4 a share on a $6 stock? Is that possible? Uh, it's possible. It depends on the power price. Okay, if you look into that, uh, there's like a $0.20 cents, um, one-time Earning okay, one-time gain. Okay, if if you get rid of that, uh, you, they earn like a eighty, um, probably towards the sixty cents euro. That's more like a ninety cents to a dollar uh, profit. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the pop price went down a little bit in the past quarter. Uh, so the going going forward, they may earn less. Okay, a slightly less. However, because of the pop situation, there's no supply coming. Then they, uh, I believe, by the time next year, the pop price will start rising again. <laughs> they, well, their earnings will go even higher. So, uh, all right. So you, so you're really still very bullish. And, and in any event, we're looking at a PE ratio here that's very, very low, isn't it? Yeah, in- incredibly low. Uh, same thing for another company, Timback, that's also under, uh, you know, under my recommendation. Though. Uh, all, all the pop stock are incredibly undervalued. If you know, oh. if you see the picture, that uh, there's no new pop coming online, new more, new more, okay. no no more new pop mail coming online. Okay, Chen, we only have uh, less than a minute. I have to ask you about some earnings. I've been very bullish on the gold and silver mining company earnings. You were telling me before we went on the air that there's one company you follow, a silver mining company, I believe, that has come out with some pretty darn good earnings. Could you talk about that in the next 30 seconds? Yeah, it's quarterly end. It's uh, one of the largest silver mines. They're going to report this week. I believe it uh, will be a, a, a Thursday morning. And it, it, it's Kinsenden, Kinsenden new gold mine. It's ahead of schedule. So I believe they should report very nice earnings. So I'm uh, very uh, bullish on the stock. And you, of course, have a couple of other silver favorites as well, I might add. Uh, would you care to mention those again? Yeah, it's a golden mineral that has been a huge, huge run. And then Alex, Alexco, and that's also uh, doing very, very well. Both are doing very well in the past, especially the past few months. 
Okay, excellent, Chen. Well, thank you so much again for uh, for your insights. Uh, we're going to be uh, right back, folks. We're going to come back with Brian Kerwin. He's the president and CEO of American Bonanza. This is a company poised to begin gold production in southwestern Arizona in the near future. I'm sure you're not going to want to miss Brian. So come back with me right after the break. Don't go away. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources Traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. 
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really happy to have with me Brian Kerwin. He's the president and CEO of American Bonanza. And that's a company that is a sponsor to our show. We're thankful to Brian and to... American Bonanza for making this show financially viable. American Bonanza trades on the Toronto Exchange. Uh, I believe it's still the Venture Exchange under the symbol BZA. Uh, over the counter in the U.S., you can buy the stock under the symbol ABGFF. Uh, and there's approximately 100, just under 130 million shares outstanding. Uh, so welcome, Brian, again, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you, Jay. Thanks for, for having me here. It's really good to have you again. Uh, the name of your mining project, located in southwestern Arizona, is the Copperstone Mine, and you uh, you have completed a feasibility study. Uh, you, in fact, the last time we had you on the show, that was true. There's a lot of other developments that we want you to talk about and update our listeners about as well. But if you could just, uh, perhaps, for those that haven't heard your story before, sort of tell us about the economics as outlined by the feasibility study, if you would, please. Sure. Um, we're, we're working with a uh, feasibility resource of 313,000 ounces at about 10.3 grams per ton gold in an oxide system. And um, it'll be mined underground, and the uh, flow sheet's very simple. It's a crush-grind-gravity flotation circuit. Um, the, uh, the feasibility study uh, indicated um, a total uh, life-of-mine cash flow um, at 12.50 gold, which is $100 less than we are today, of over $135 million, so uh, more than a dollar a share. So it has um, very robust uh, uh, economics as it is right now and significant upside in terms of tons and grade. Okay, could you tell us what, how many ounces you expect to produce a year on average and, and what is the mine life uh, based on the current resource? Right. The mine life based on the feasibility resource is uh, six and a half years. And uh, the first three years, it's front-loaded. The first three years average 46,000 ounces per year. Okay. And then a little less than that later on, I guess. But okay, so uh, what sort of capital expenditures are going to be required to, to get into production, Brian? Well, the feasibility study was completed in February, and uh, it estimated a total capital cost, including indirects. Um, of $17.7 million. Um, that's a low number, partly because there's a significant amount of infrastructure there now. Um, we have the power in place, the, the grid power is in place, um, we have the water supply in place, uh, we have um, the underground access in place. We've got a 700-meter tunnel that, that we've, we've driven into the first stopes, and uh, there's a significant number of uh, offices and shops and warehouses and things that are also in place. So that's, that's a significant part of the reason why that number is low. 
the other the yeah. other part is that it's a small a small high grade operation. Um, now, since February, you know, we've been conducting a significant amount of work. We have purchased a mill, um, which is currently being transported to site, um, and uh, we, we made some cost savings when we purchased that mill relative to the feasibility study. Uh, we've also been uh, spending money on things that were included in the feasibility capital estimate uh, along the lines of permitting and, and other things like that. So the number has uh, has has dropped to maybe 16 million as we stand right now, and um, and um, hopefully if we can uh, complete a transaction here, an unrelated transaction here in the next couple of weeks, um, then our our capital need would be down around 12 or 13 million dollars, which uh, in in today's market is um, we think pretty achievable. So we're just working now on how to best optimize that 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 financing uh, to the benefit of our shareholders. Okay, so is when you talk about financing, uh, you had a deal, I think uh, you're selling some of your Canadian properties, is that right? Is that what you're talking about? That's right, and and those are exploration properties. We think they have a, a great deal of potential. They're great properties, and we think the company um, that we will own stock in um, will will do a good job of exploring those and and uh, demonstrating their value. But as as we we turn our eyes towards developing Copperstone. Um, we see the future growth of the company more along the lines of projects that are in production or very near to being in production, and less along the lines of uh, exploration. Uh, for discovery of ore bodies, and so um, that's a good that that transaction is a, a good fit for us as we build Copperstone out, and um, uh, upon closing, uh, will will give us enough cash to you know carry on the development of the project uh, without delays for financing. It'll it'll just keep on moving on schedule. Okay, so you'll still need to raise some twelve million dollars. Do you have any idea how you're going to do that yet? I mean, I realize this is a very low low entry price, a low cap X to get into production for a gold mine these days. It absolutely is. I understand that. But any ideas? Uh, might you have to do a, a gold hedge or something like that? Well, we, we, we've looked, uh, we, we are looking at a number of uh, different opportunities, um, including uh, debt, including um, gold stream deals, including um, equity, um, in, in, including quite a wide range of uh, different types of transactions. And, uh, and our job now, as we see it, is to optimize that process as best we can to the benefit of our shareholders. And right now, uh, with the share structure that we currently have, you know, the, uh, the, the feasibility estimate of cash flows at 1250 gold uh, is over a dollar a share. And so we want to we kind of keep that in, intact as much as we can um, so that as we develop this, you know, that's an easy metric for people to point at and value the, the stock at a much higher price than it is today. So we're going to keep the project going forward. Um, we're going we're gonna to get out and tell the story. We've been, you know, awfully focused on permitting and awfully focused on, you know, the feasibility and, 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 and the job of building this plant. And um, and now we're going to, with, with a few accomplishments that we have recently, we're going to have uh, more of a focus on getting out and telling the story. And uh, and so we just, we will make the best decision that we can, you know, when that day comes. But um, but we're still working to optimize the, the result. Okay, Brian, can you tell us what, uh, give us a sense of what the exploration potential is there for building ounces, and let's say you're able to find a lot more ounces, is there a, an ability to expand this beyond, say, 40,000 ounces a year or so? 
Um, I'll answer those in reverse. Um, the answer is yes, it is expandable. The plant has been designed so that a parallel circuit could easily be in place. However, um, the, the mill that we purchased, which was less than the feasibility uh, estimate uh, in terms of cost, uh, is actually uh, significantly larger than, um, than our feasibility um, uh, design. So uh, there's, there's built-in expandability uh, to, the, to the entire plant, to the entire operation. Um, in terms of the uh, tonnage upside, the feasibility estimates uh, are in, an inferred resource in one area. Um, all of the feasibility economic results work off of the measured and indicated resource uh, that I described earlier. Um, but in one area, uh, we do have a, a, a drilled target that uh, contains uh, a 12-gram inferred resource that's roughly half the size of our current measured and indicated resources. Mm-hmm. And that, that area is among um, the areas that we are permitting, and it's in and among our planned underground workings, so it could seamlessly be developed. Uh, to extend or expand the mine life. The second area where we see tonnage expansion potential is just down dip on all the main zones. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Stokes has currently designed stop in a down dip direction where we chose to stop drilling in order to uh, commence the development of the mine. So um, there's nothing that indicates that, that that mineralization stops in that direction, and we believe that there's good potential to increase by 50% there as well. So between those two targets, um, there's, there is apparent and obvious potential to uh, double the tons here, and, uh, and that's not accounting for the grade upsides. Mm-hmm. Well, that certainly is interesting because uh, you are a relatively small producer. What sort of multiple to cash flow do you think is reasonable? If you look at your peers, what would you expect? Your, your current market cap's about $44 million now. What might you expect if you were to sell at, if you can think of some peers that, uh, that might give, you, give investors some idea, what you might sell at if you are successful in producing along the lines outlined by your feasibility study? Right. Well, the, the most objective um, view that I can take towards that um, has to do with uh, the, the feasibility case of 1250 being less than but similar to current gold prices. Um, right now, the, uh, the sum of those cash flows uh, is over a dollar a share for the current share structure, and we're, as you say, trading at 35 cents today. Mm-hmm. So just the sum of the cash flows um, when we're not in production yet um, would, would indicate uh, the potential for a triple from here. Um, we believe that uh, once p- uh, successful production is demonstrated, the, the, that, ra- that ratio um, uh, or that multiple could double from there. And uh, if the tons double, uh, you can see that we're getting to a heck of a lot of upside in the stock. Sure. Well, that's very interesting. I might add, uh, we're just basically out of time now, but I want to tell our listeners that I've been on your website. It's a very informative website. It provides some good 3D images that can help people understand and conceptualize what your mining project is all about. Could you tell our listeners what your website is, Brian? Uh, Yes, it's uh, AmericanBonanza.com. Fantastic. That's easy enough to remember, AmericanBonanza.com. Anything else you'd like to add before we conclude our discussion, before the next time? Sure, yeah, I just just a couple recent developments. We just recently obtained all of the federal permits required uh, to go mining here, and we're working on the state permits, and uh, maybe that's another um, two months, maybe three months uh, down the road, and that is the last thing stopping us um, to 
before we, before we can commence the underground uh, mining pre-development. And so, uh, so we're looking to be in production, you know, mid-next year. Oh, good. Well, certainly uh, each of those steps along the way remove an element of risk, and so investors should keep up with what you're doing. Keep on, on top of it. If they're interested uh, in your story, they can go to your website and learn, uh, learn more and keep up to date with you. Thank you so much, Ryan, for being with us again, and I look forward to having you back again sometime in the near future. Well, thanks for having uh, me, Jay. Well, you're welcome. I look forward to it again. Well, don't go away, folks. We're going to have back with me in just a minute uh, as soon as the commercial break is over. Adrian Day, he's the author of a new book called Investing in Resources, How to Profit from the Outsized Potential and Avoid the Risk. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Mr. Day. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by as regular listeners to this show know i am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks one of my favorite gold mining companies is metanor resources traded toronto and the pink sheets this is a new gold producer it is using cash flows from its berry mine in quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world famous quebec bachelor lake mine back into production this stock has been recommended by my newsletter because i do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Voice America Business Network, 
the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm very, very pleased to have with me uh, as one of two main guests today, Adrian Day. Adrian Day is the founder and president of Adrian Day Asset Management. He's the author of International Investment Opportunities, How and Where to Invest Overseas Successfully, and Investing Without Borders. As well, uh, he is the editor of Adrian Day's Global Analyst Newsletter. Adrian is a recognized authority on, in both uh, global and resource investing. He is frequently interviewed by both domestic and international press, and he is a popular speaker at financial conferences and seminars around the world. And indeed, I've been privileged to be on panel discussions sitting right next to Adrian at times in the past. Adrian is a graduate of the London School of Economics. Uh, wished I could say the same. Uh, I've only got Rutgers behind my name, but uh, in any event, thank you, Adrian, for turning hard, uh, being with us today on turning hard times into good times. Well, thank you, Jay. Pleasure to be here. Really great to have you uh, with your British accent and all, especially. It's very charming for Americans. <laughs> uh, in any event, uh, the title of your book is Investing in Resources, but the subtitle to me is more interesting, more significant, How to Profit from the Outsized Potential and Avoid the Risks. What do you mean by outsized potential? That's quite simple, really. I believe we're we're partly, we're only partly through a super cycle. If you look back at history, most of the big moves up, the long sustained moves in commodity prices have come when there's a new source of demand. And that new source of demand typically comes when, an, when a major economy industrializes. You saw it from 1825 to 1840 when, during Britain's Industrial Revol- uh, Revolution. You saw it from 1875 to 1914 when the U.S. industrialized, and so on. So these are the really big sustained moves. Now we're at the cusp, we're at the takeoff point for China. China, of course, has been growing very, very rapidly in the last few years, but it's just at that takeoff point right now when the demand for resources traditionally starts to take off and go exponential. And, of course, when I say outside potential, I'm referring to the fact that China represents 20% of the world's population. So if if, if China does anything at all similar to what other industrial economy, industrializing economies have from Taiwan and Korea and Japan back to the U.S. and Britain, uh, we, are, we are simply at the beginning of what will be a major long-term move for commodity prices. And you would throw India into that mix as well as, as other populist Asian countries, I suppose. Well, absolutely, but, but uh, no, of course. But China is not only China's not only the largest, you know, twenty percent of yeah. the world's population, uh, but it's also the one that's at that takeoff point. Indonesia, mm-hmm. Thailand, some of the other countries are still a little bit behind. Well, we've had quite a run-up in the commodities, uh, Adrian, from their lows a few years back, and the uh, you know 
back in 2000 or so. Uh, and yet you think this is really a, just the takeoff point. So you, you think we're going to see exponential rises in prices in the not-too-distant future? Well, no, absolutely. And if, if I may, if I may um, give you a couple of statistics, if I may. I mean, you look at, sure. look at oil, for example. Um, Japan, after the Second World War, consumed about one barrel of oil per person per year. And in the beginning of the, early, in the, beginning of the 1960s, it was up to about two barrels per person. So in 15 years, it moved up about, uh, it doubled up to two barrels per person. Then during the 60s, demand exploded upwards as the, as the economy industrialized, went from two barrels a person all the way up to 15 barrels a person by the end of a decade, and that's where it is today. You look at Korea, the same thing. At the beginning of, at the end of the 1970s, there was about four barrels of oil per person, up from less than one barrel per person two decades before, and then it exploded upwards over the next eight years to 15 barrels per person. China right now is at about 2.7 barrels per person. That's already up significantly from 10 years ago. So what you typically have is you have this long, slow appreciation until an economy reaches that critical takeoff point where China is right now, then you get the exponential move upwards. Now, I'm not saying, and, and you, could, you could repeat this exercise with pretty much every commodity in varying degrees. Now, I'm not saying that China will necessarily go to 15 barrels per person. Apart from anything else, China consumes more, has more coal and uranium in its power mix than, than mm -hmm. do most other industrial countries. Um, perhaps they'll have more efficiencies, etc. But as it starts to move to four barrels per person, five barrels per person, which will still be a third of the industrial, industrialized world's average, then the potential uh, uh, demand uh, will truly be exponential just because of the number of people in China. Of course, when we talk about commodities, we all, always have to be concerned about supplies, too. And I'm thinking, as you're talking about China needing all this additional oil, the geopolitical conflicts that may arise as a result of that, already we may have seen some of that taking place. Any thoughts on that? Uh, no, absolutely. I tell you, as I was writing this book, it became very, very clear to me that we simply do not know where the resources are coming from in order to meet this demand. And, and that rises the potential, gives rise to the potential for wars, for famines, for riots, etc., etc. And as you say, we've only seen an inkling of that so far. Not only, you know, I don't want to get too contentious here, but, but uh, some might say that the war in Iraq was driven by, by oil. But be that as it may, we know for a fact that there have been shortages of food uh, in the last couple of years that have caused riots in various, in various countries. Uh, this is just the beginning. We are unfortunately going to get more of that. Um, unfortunately, you and I, Jay, can't do much about that. But what we can do something about is make sure that we protect ourselves and our family um, by, by our investing um, process. Sure. Uh, well, if you can see it coming, obviously you're at an advantage over those that don't see it coming. We don't want to be blindsided. What we really try to do on this show is to gain those insights that can help protect us from, uh, from the problems ahead. Uh, speaking of problems ahead, of course, the other part of the subtitle of your book was And Avoid the Risks. Uh, let's talk about the risks a little bit of investing in commodities, if you would. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of risks, obviously. One risk by 
by the very nature of commodities is that commodity prices tend to be volatile because they're at the earlier stage of production as opposed to, say, the shoe salesman who's selling shoes in a store. Because they're at the earlier stage of production, prices tend to be a lot more volatile. It's a lot more uh, difficult both to slow down production if there's a slowdown in demand and also to ramp up production if there's an increase in demand. That's in a normal cyclical, in a, in a normal cycle. Forget about China, forget about any huge exponential increase. It's just, it just takes longer uh, uh, to respond to signals from the market, the end signals from the market, and therefore prices tend to be a lot more volatile. Now, if commodity prices are volatile, as you and I and your listeners know, the prices of the mining companies and the producers and the explorers are even more volatile. And so I do not equate volatility with risk. I have to emphasize that. You can have, a, as Warren Buffett said, a far over a lumpy 20% than a flat 10%. Mm. Volatility is not the same as risk. But, of course, investors have to know how to deal with volatility. We're going to have volatility in this sector, even in the context of a long-term bull market. We've seen that in the past. We saw that in 2008 and 2009, for no, goodness sake. Did we ever? Yes. Um, yeah. Um, and, of course, in the 1970s, the big bull market in gold. In 74-75, gold fell by almost 50%, and the gold mining companies by even more. That was in the, right at the beginning of the second leg up in, in the bull market. So, so corrections, we're going to get that. And, mm -hmm. and the key is, how does the investor respond to that? I think the critical thing is that the investor understands the long-term, he understands and is committed to the long-term picture, he understands the individual companies in which he's invested, and if he does both of those two, that'll give him a much better idea of how to respond to volatility. Um, generally speaking, I think if you believe in a long-term bull market, if you think if you think that gold is going to be twenty, thirty, forty, fifty percent higher in a few years' time, if you think that silver could be thirty, forty dollars in a few years' time or within a year or two, you don't want to worry too much about these short-term short-term pullbacks and get panicked out, because that's where the risk comes. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about then are really long-term secular moves as opposed to cyclical moves in, in, this, uh, in this sector. When is the last time we've seen this sort of a, a, a rise in commodities? Would it be the 70s, or is this bigger than the 70s? Oh, it's, it's much bigger than the 70s. We saw it during the Second World War, of course, but before that it was really from, uh, from, the, end of the, from the end of the 19th century uh, through to pretty much 1925, you know, something like that, when you had this huge run-up, and it was a run-up in virtually all commodities. Uh, that's, that's the other key. Now, commodity cycles tend to be long. I think that's the other thing that's, that's, um, that's, that's critical to explain to people. They tend to be long. The shortest copper cycle in the last 250 years, for example, is 17 years. That's the shortest. Of course, you can, you can always argue a little bit about how you define a cycle, but, but that's the generally accepted number. Um, and so even if this is only the shortest cycle, which it won't be, we're still only about halfway through it. And I think that's what's critical for investors to, to, really, to really understand. So we have a few more years to run. Um, Adrian, are there certain commodities that you're more bullish on than others? Good question. Yeah, well, yes, yes, of course. Uh, first of all, let me say I am bullish on the entire complex. And by the entire complex, I'm talking about base metals, precious metals, 
uh, energy of all forms, oil, gas, but renewable energy, well, you know, geothermal and, and, and other forms of energy, uranium, agriculture as well. So I'm bullish on the whole complex. Now, the demand supply patterns for some are stronger than for others, number one. And number two, there will clearly be times when it's better to buy one, uh, you know, there'll be better times to buy a commodity than others. So within, within the overall portfolio of having a broad exposure to commodities for the long term and sticking with it, I think you need to just be a little bit, uh, 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 a little bit of a, I won't say trader, but you need, to, you need to trim when things are ahead of themselves in order that you can put the money into things that are behind themselves. If I were to look over a five to ten year period, I think copper is definitely going to be very, very strong. Um, oil is going to be very strong because it's a fun, and both of those two are the fundamental building blocks of an industrializing economy. You cannot industrialize an economy without a growing demand for oil and copper. Uh, beyond that, I think uranium is going to be extremely strong, except with one proviso. The next few years, two to three years, have the potential to be fairly flat for uranium. You know, we have a lot of excess capacity in Kazakhstan. We have new mines, new supply coming on in Kazakhstan. And Kazakhstan has said it will be the swing producer. When prices move up a little bit, it'll produce more. When prices go down, it'll ease off a little bit. So for the next few years, we do have excess supply. And we also have the possibility of Cigar Lake, chemical Cigar Lake coming on stream. Cigar Lake represents 15% of the world's production. And it was flooded, as most of you most of you will know, a few a few years ago in the development stage. Now, if 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 Cigar Lake does come on stream together with Kazakhstan's uh, excess production, and the fact that China's demand is not really ramping up until 2016, 2017, there's a possibility that uranium will be flat. But in the second half of this decade, the demand for the the, the uranium market could be, if you pardon the pun, explosive. So you need <laughs> yeah. to start a, so whereas I'm buying and and then the precious metals which are their own subject but I'm bullish on silver, platinum and gold. So I would be buying uh, the precious metals, I would be buying copper, I would be accumulating um oil and I'd be accumulating uh uranium. Uh, speaking of uranium, do you think there is any chance that we'll have more uh, supply coming out of governments again, another arrangement where there's weapons that are being taken apart? Yeah, I think we're definitely, I, I think we're definitely going to have that. The big question, I think that's already priced into the market, but the mm -hmm. big question is just how much supply is there in these um, mm -hmm. old warheads. I don't think that I've... Uh, I don't think that either Russia or the United States anytime soon is going to go completely naked. So I don't know how much how much additional supply there is from that source, to be honest. Well, I do know that uh, the United States is the largest, I believe, the largest consumer of uranium for nuclear power. And we get something like 20 or 25 percent of our of our electricity from nuclear power, and yet uh, I, I think the number is something like 55 million pounds a year we consume for that purpose, but we're only producing three or four million pounds a year, and so obviously uh, when that excess supply is worked off the markets, uh, the, the price of uranium relative to you know, the production of electricity is, is very low, so it's, uh, I, I guess, very, very inelastic, really. So the price could go up and you'd still be 
you know, consuming as much uranium, pretty much. Well, I was going to make the same point. Unlike, a, as you just said, unlike a coal-fired coal plant or, 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 or an oil-fired plant, mm -hmm. um, with uranium plants, with, with the nuclear plants, the, the upfront capital costs are by far your biggest, your biggest component. And the ongoing costs, you know, amortization at CapEx becomes your biggest cost component, more than operating the plant and far more than the actual cost of uh, uranium. So what's far more important than uranium is, is the actual reliability of supply, much more than the price. And whether it's $50 or $150 or even more, um, it doesn't affect, once you've built that power plant, once you've built that and you're paying the bank back, you're going to pay whatever it is to get your uranium to keep it running. Because the other thing, is, as you know, is that you, a, a, a nuclear power plant has no other use. It has no other value. You can't change it to a coal-fired plant because the price of uranium is too high. You, you have to keep operating it as a nuclear plant or close it down. All right, Adrian, you talked about precious metals just briefly. You said they're their own subjects. So let's switch to precious metals for a moment. What are your what are your views on precious metals? Precious metals going to do going to outperform uh, the base metals and copper, like you just you suggested. Those are your your favorite uh, commodities, perhaps. Will the precious metals keep up with uh, perform better or fall behind those uh, those more industrial uh, commodities? Well, I think obviously we have to look at each one separately. But but you know, gold to me, has, I don't think gold will outperform. I don't think gold will be the strongest. But gold, to me, has the best risk-reward characteristics. It has the best combination of risk and reward. And, and, the, ration, and the reason for that are, are, are clear. You know, gold has two characteristics that are completely different from most other uh, metals. One is that it's money, uh, with all of, that, all of that implies. And the second thing, of course, is that there are huge above-ground supplies, which you don't have in copper or nickel or anything else. So... Uh, you, you, have, you always have that ever-present risk of additional selling from governments. I'm not sure we're going to see that going forward. And as you know, central banks became, uh, are now net buyers of gold uh, for the first time in 20 years, reverting, incidentally, to their historical role as buyers of gold, not, not as sellers of gold. Mm -hmm. The last 20 years was an aberration. But nonetheless, it, it is a risk that there are large above-ground uh, supplies and I'm talking primarily here of the IMF, of course, and and the United States. You probably noticed a few trial balloons being fl raised or floated uh, regarding the U.S. Uh, selling some of its gold. Mm -hmm. So that's going to come a little more to the foreground foreground of a public debate, I believe. But on balance, I mean, I think people, both bankers and individuals, are turning to gold because they don't trust paper money, basically. That's why we're buying gold right now. It's not a speculation. Mm -hmm. We're buying it as a defensive insurance measure because we don't trust paper money and we don't trust the people who claim to control paper money and the value of paper money. Mm -hmm. And gold is, in effect, becoming a de facto gold standard again. It's becoming the de facto reserve currency, in, in my view. Um, so I'm very bullish on gold, but it's a different, different characteristics. Uh, platinum I, is much more like an industrial metal in many ways, and some people won't like me saying that. But I think the fundamentals for platinum are remarkably strong, both on the demand and the supply side. We could talk more about that perhaps another time. Oh, yeah, but indeed. Uh, very, very strong. 
Uh, and so with respect to silver or gold, yeah. uh, silver would take more of an industrial uh, component, um, more, would maybe be more of an industrial metal than gold. Would you agree with that? Well, in some ways, yes. It, it definitely has much more industrial component. But here's the thing. A lot of people were worried about silver during the last recession because they say we'll cut back on the demand. But, you know, since most silver is byproduct, it's byproduct of copper and zinc and tin mines, if you get a serious global recession, the supply of silver will be cut back very, very rapidly as the price, as the supply of base metals gets cut back. So, so it seems to me that silver in many ways combines the benefits of gold with the benefits of, plat- of uh, plat- uh, platinum and other base metals. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I'm very bullish on silver. And, of course, what's held silver back, as all your listeners know, what's held silver back for 20 years, basically, are those huge above-ground supplies. But those huge above-ground supplies have now been exhausted and have been for the last couple of years. So that we've been running, I mean, we've been running current supply-demand deficits in silver for basically 20 years. But because there were always these stockpiles to draw down on, the price never really moved. But now those supplies have been drawn down, the price is beginning to move. So, so I only see silver moving moving on up from here, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I would uh, just my idea, and I like to hear what you have to say about it. Uh, silver would be more sometimes referred to as poor man's gold, and uh, I I think that mostly who's buying gold so far, as you pointed out, the central banks. Uh, George Soros, probably sophisticated investors, some hedge fund people perhaps. Uh, I don't think, as I walk down the streets of New York, I would find one in a thousand or one in a hundred people that thought. Uh, putting much money in gold made much sense if you just talk to the common folks. If we start to have a realization that inflation and the dollar is losing its value, which I think most people are oblivious to, to a great extent, but if that becomes a common worry, as it was in the 70s, do you not think that that would be very, very bullish for silver, perhaps more than gold? Oh, absolutely, because if, if gold is then 1500 or 1800 an ounce by, that time, by the time the public really wakes up, a lot of people won't be able to afford that, and they will have to buy, you know, they will buy silver. But your, your point there is absolutely right. You know, people talk about the gold being in a bubble, being in a mania. It is so far from a mania that it's not even funny. Yes, of course, there's more interest today than there was two or three years ago, but it is not a mania. You know, you go to gold shows, and they're not overcrowded with people. Um, you know, people aren't, there's no lines outside coin dealers trying to buy coins. Um, you don't go to polite, uh, polite dinner parties and people are automatically talking about gold the way they mm-hmm. were talking about real estate or, um, you know, tech stocks 10 years ago. So gold is not a bubble by any means. The public is very, very undervested in gold right now. Very undervested. It, it would seem that that's certainly my uh, my non-scientific observation as well, Adrian. Uh, I'd like to ask you about... Um, your view of the economy in general. We certainly still have lots of uh, problems, lots of uh, imbalances in the global economy. We have uh, currency wars that are going on. Maybe uh, they've quieted down for the moment. Uh, You mentioned uh, people going to gold as the currency, a de facto currency again. Um, Where do you think this is going to come out? How far do you think this will go? Uh, Do you think it's got a lot further to go? Gold? Well, yes. Do you, do you, do you, well, I mean, in terms of this currency, yeah. uh, there's there's sort of a beggar thy neighbor 
uh, you know, currency devaluation that, that has, has been going on with every country trying to get an advantage export-wise by cheapening their currency and, of course, by printing more, more of it. And uh, that, I think, is part of the reason, in my view, that we're going towards uh, – that people are going towards gold, the debasing Absolutely. of the currency, as you pointed out. Do you, ha- you, you think this has a lot further to run yet? Oh, I think it has a lot, lot further to go. But I think the way that it's going to develop is the currencies that are fundamentally undervalued, which are primarily the Asian currencies, not just the Chinese one, but also, say, the Singapore dollar, I mean, the Hong Kong dollar, which is still linked to the United States, even though the economy is much stronger, uh, the Thai baht, those currencies are going to, are going to slowly appreciate, in, in my view, over the coming years against U.S. dollar. Um, But gold is going to be the primary beneficiary because countries, to one degree or another, don't want a stronger currency. Some are actively trying to get a weaker currency. Some, you know, have um, benign neglect, and some are reluctantly allowing their currencies to improve just a little bit. But nobody really wants a stronger currency right now, which which is a foolish attitude, but that, again, is a different situation. So, no, I think you're going to continue to get policies that drive paper money down, and um, it's just going to be a spiral in the end. Adrian, we have less than one minute left here, but I want to ask you, this is a a topic perhaps we can revisit when you come back on our show in a couple of weeks, but with respect uh, to inflation or deflation, we have people on this show that have taken both sides. We have some staunch deflationists. We have some hyperinflationists, like economist John Williams has been with us in the past. Where do you come on, down on this, or do you think we might muddle through with something less spectacular than either of these extremes? I suspect we'll muddle through for at least the next few years, but inflation is being baked into the system. So whether inflation exhibits itself, I mean, it's exhibiting itself right now in resource prices and stock market prices. At what point does it translate into retail prices? I don't know. I suspect it's a lot longer than some people, uh, some people believe. And, and we can only look at the uh, Japanese experience to show that uh, despite their big increase in money, um, there's no increase in prices. Yeah. Well, Adrian, thank you very much. We are out of time. We're going to have you back in a couple of weeks if you're willing to come back and talk with me. Uh, It'll be a lot of uh, fun. We'll have a lot of more interesting things. I'd like to zone in on some of the specific metals that you talk about in your book and tell people how they can buy your book. By the way, what is your website? Uh, Well, it's easy. It's adrianday.com. AdrianDay.com, and I guess they can buy your book. They can find out how to do it if they go there as well, right? Okay, folks, don't go away because we're going to come right back. We're going to teach you how you can vanish if you want to do that. We've got a young attorney, a California attorney named Bill Rounds, who's going to be with us. But we're not really suggesting that you vanish. We're just suggesting you might want more privacy. That's really what it's about. Bill Rounds, attorney Bill Rounds, will be with us right after the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits 
deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by as regular listeners to this show know i am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks one of my favorite gold mining companies is metanor resources traded toronto and the pink sheets this is a new gold producer it is using cash flows from its berry mine in quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world famous quebec bachelor lake mine back into production this stock has been recommended by my newsletter because i do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk visit metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions at gmail.com. 
That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and you are making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I should mention that our sponsors for the second hour are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, Adventure Gold, Brigus Gold Corp., Gold and Minerals, Metanor Resources, and I just learned that we have a new sponsor named North Atlantic Resources. So thanks to each of the sponsors for making this show financially viable. Um, so I, I want to get started here with a very interesting topic. I don't know if you've ever wanted to vanish. I guess there are times when I've probably wanted to vanish when I was very embarrassed about something. Maybe times when I was I felt guilty about something. I'd rather just you know fall in a hole and nobody would know I was around. But Bill Rounds, uh, Attorney Bill Rounds, he's a California attorney, is with me, and uh, he really focuses on, on the privacy issues. Uh, he is an advocate of personal and financial freedom and civil liberties. Uh, his website is howtovanish.com. It offers tips on how people can control the amount of private personal information that they make available to the public. And he is the author of an upcoming book uh, titled How to Vanish. Uh, and this is uh, supposed to be a complete guide to protecting personal and financial privacy. Uh, and it will be released very shortly, I'm told. Well, welcome, Bill, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me. Well, really great to have you with me. Uh, when will your book be available? Uh, it should be just a couple of weeks, uh, two or three weeks. It'll be available on the website um, and they can go first. Right to howtovanish.com. Right. Okay. Um, I'm guessing that it's a lot harder now for people to retain their privacy than it was uh, before these major IT inventions of the last 10 or 20 years. I mean, you're you're a really young guy. I don't suppose uh, you're you're almost too young to remember what it was like before that, but uh, 20 years anyway. Uh, well, uh, I'm assuming uh, that that is the case anyway in terms of the. Uh, the, the danger that we're in if we expose too much of our personal identity, if we start talking too much about ourselves. My wife uh, will be the first one to to say that I am one that talks too much. Probably that's why I'm a host of a radio show. I like to talk. Uh, but I am on Facebook. Uh, am I in danger? Yeah, well, you know, with the advance of technology and things like that, uh, it does change the equation a little bit because now the default setting for our lives, and Facebook is kind of a good example of this, is to have that openness and, and lack of privacy. So it really takes us and, and takes uh, a conscious effort to undo those default settings and protect that private or personal information that we may not want to share with other people. Um, now, like you said, you and your wife have different um, feelings about how much privacy you want, and everybody is going to be like that. So really it's about um, taking kind of an inventory of your own life, thinking about how much privacy you want, what kind of, what aspects of your life you would like to vanish, what aspects of your life you want to remain public, and, and doing the things that are necessary to, to meet your goals. Um, and so for someone using Facebook, um, uh, a lot of people don't use it, but a lot of people do, and there's a lot of value in it, um, and, and it really can advance your social life and 
um, your professional life and things like that. So just having Facebook isn't necessarily um, a problem. Um, obviously, you're going to want to control what information you put on there, uh, and you want to have the, the privacy settings to whatever um, level of privacy you want. But you also have to remember with any of these social networking sites that it's not just you that is on there putting stuff on there. It's, it's your friends. So it, you necessarily don't have all the control of, of everything that goes on there. So uh, just, you know, if you're worried about social networking and so you don't have a social networking site, you don't have a Facebook page, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you are completely protected because other people will be posting pictures of you um, potentially or, or posting information. Uh, so just having a Facebook page or not is not necessarily uh, the, the end of the world or, or the solution to all the problems. With respect to Facebook, you've got to really be, it's not just you that's on there, it's, it's your friends that are on there. So I, I suppose by inference, your, your friends can say things that could embarrass you as well. Right. I mean, you don't necessarily have all the control in the world. So whether you have a Facebook page or not, um, th there are some risks to your privacy. And so you've got to take not just whatever um, measures you need to take on Facebook to protect your privacy by not putting up the personal information you want, but you need to take those uh, measures in other aspects of your life as well. Mm -hmm. What about some of the other social networks? Um, and, and, well, I guess before we get to that, what about advertisers and, uh, and corporations? Are they able to go in there and get information about you that, uh, that they can use in one way or another that might be problematic? Oh, certainly. There's the, the amount of data that's collected by advertisers and corporations and then is shared among other corporations and other advertising agencies is huge. Uh, they probably know more about you than you know about yourself. Uh, and so the, the sharing of that information does have a few potentials um, for may, maybe economic harm even. Um, if you consider when you go to the grocery store and you use a shopping card, mm -hmm. they are keeping track of all of the food that you buy. And mm -hmm. along with your credit card purchases, they see all of the uh, restaurants that, that you eat at and the food mm -hmm. that you buy there. So there is a potential that maybe... Uh, a health insurer or an employer uh, looks at that and says, and makes the calculation and says, oh, you know what, this person eats a lot of fatty foods, they eat a lot of Twinkies and, and Ding Dongs and a whole mm -hmm. lot of soda. Um, I'm going to raise their premiums or, you know, I may or may not hire them because I don't think that they are um, going to have a very productive uh, few years because mm -hmm. they're probably going to have a lot of health problems. Um, so, so the sharing of that information, there is, there is potential for abuse there. And, and unless you do something about it, they're collecting a lot of mm -hmm. information about you. Mm -hmm. And what protection is there, uh, or is there any, from, from our government for that, against that? Well, there, there's certainly a problem with some things, because there are some things that you're absolutely required to disclose information. For example, uh, when you open a bank account or make a, a wire transfer of money or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, the, the banks are required to follow the Know Your Customer rules. Mm -hmm. And so they collect quite a bit of information. Um, plus, if you make um, large cash withdrawals or deposits, they're uh, making reports to uh, different agencies in the government. So, so they are keeping quite a bit of track of some things. Um, but there, there are other things 
um, that you know your regular economic transactions with grocery stores and things like that, when you do it with cash, um, aren't uh, kept track of, and there's no requirements to keep track of most of those right now. Um, so, uh, as long as you kind of understand what the rules are, and and play by the rules, you should be okay. Now, I should mention also that uh, breaking the law is the worst thing you can do uh, for your privacy, because once you break the law, you um, give an excuse or a reason to do a lot for for police and other government agencies to do a lot in investigating your personal history and your personal activities. Mm-hmm. So if if you can stay away from uh, breaking the law, you're going to protect your privacy a lot more. Mm-hmm. Even if even if the law uh, is one of those that requires you to di- disclose some personal information, it's still better to follow those laws uh, than to break them. What sort of laws uh, might might apply here that uh, you might break on the internet? Um, well, not necessarily. I can't think of one on the internet uh, mm-hmm. at the moment. Just but in general, usually in 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 banking. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, when when you open a bank account, you need to give them uh, quite a bit of personal information so that they know, so that the bank knows who they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. If you were to falsify information uh, at that point, um, that would be breaking the law, uh, and that is not recommended. And and then the government would have an excuse to watch you even more closely, probably. Right. They would have they would have an excuse to uh, issue a warrant uh, to search you, your house, your computers, mm-hmm. um, and everything, and that is uh, an extreme violation of your privacy, but in that uh, instance, they would probably be justified in doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about some of the, we, we mentioned Facebook, what about uh, some of the other social networks? Could you comment on some of the other, uh, some of the other entities? Okay, well, they all kind of follow a similar model um, as Facebook. They're gathering data uh, to share with marketers uh, and to share with with others. Um, But they are providing some, um, for example, Twitter. Uh, Twitter is something that you can use to um, generate a following and and keep uh, maybe readers or or something like that abreast of the things that are going on. Uh, But there's also a potential of sharing too much information. Uh, Now, there's actually a, a new social networking site that will be coming out called Diaspora. And it's essentially uh, an encrypted, locked-down, private version of Facebook. Hmm. So um, it it takes advantage of the benefits of Facebook, which is the social network, Hmm. the the connections and the networking between people. But it gives you the the default of Diaspora uh, is to be private rather than open. And... So, you know, we, we've we've gone through kind of this first generation of social networking sites, and we've experienced those growing pains just like a, a kid going through adolescence or something like that. And so the next wave um, are, are, are going to be taking into consideration, there will be some that take into consideration those privacy concerns. Uh, and so I, I think we're going to be able to move in, into an area where we'll have social networking that protects our privacy as well if you want it. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's reassuring, I suppose, if uh, some of us uh, older guys uh, can catch up with the changes that are going on so rapidly. Um, what about um, protection of our civil rights? Uh, is, you know, is, is government totally in bed with these large corporations now, or you know, is, is there some protection of our civil liberties out there yet uh, that the government is still 
uh, enforcing. In the U.S., there the there are still quite a few protections of civil liberties, um, especially in in freedom of speech when you're not talking about commercial speech. Uh, commercial speech is pretty controlled, pretty regulated. Um, so as long as you try and stay away from that, you, your civil liberties are pretty well protected. However, um, the the zone of what's considered commercial speech is expanding, uh, and and there are new regulations regulations coming out in that area all the time. Um, and if you were to travel abroad, um, those civil liberties, those things we considered fun, fundamental rights, no matter where you are on the planet, um, other countries don't necessarily respect them as well. So there are ways that you can use technology uh, and the Internet to actually to preserve uh, your privacy, both in the things that you say on the Internet and in the things that you read on the Internet. Um, one of the things that a lot of people may or may not be aware of is as they enter things into Google or as they search on the Internet, their ISP and whatever websites they're visiting can trace back all of your, ha- all of your activity back to your computer based on your IP address. Uh, and so if uh, the government wants to know what, what you've been looking at, what websites you've been visiting, all they need to do is contact your Internet service provider. Internet, mm-hmm. The Internet without a warrant, the Internet service provider will uh, provide that information to the government. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there are things you can do, like using proxy servers to protect that, uh, that trail, to keep your history of surfing from being known by your ISP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, what it is, is essentially you're connecting to another computer somewhere that will do the web surfing for you. Um, and so there's, there's some free proxy servers, and some can be very good, but they may be difficult to find one that uh, operates the way you want. There's paid services, so, you know, for $10 a month, you can have access to proxy servers all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's actually probably a good idea is to um, choose the country that you would prefer to be surfing from. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Iceland is a country that's kind of moving towards um, a system that is extremely, uh, that, that promotes uh, free speech mm-hmm. and free access to information. Mm-hmm. So you may want to access a server in Iceland mm-hmm. uh, to do your surfing for you because they won't have any controls or restrictions over viewing of websites. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that the, uh, that the zone of what they consider to be political speech is, is narrowing or, or what is considered to be commercial speech is being expanded. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, for example, I am somewhat outspoken on some political issues, and um, I sat in a group of uh, pretty prestigious Wall Street folks the other day, and I was really talking about how, my views on, uh, on money. Uh, you know, I said, you know, I talked about fiat currency being a means for reallocating wealth from those that create it, from the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, the people, the common folks that work hard, play by the rules and create wealth, being, uh, you know, siphoned away through the, through the fiat currency system to uh, the bankers and to the government, in a sense. And I, I believe that with all my heart. Anyway, I spoke out about it, and I looked around, and I said, well, maybe... This is not a topic that's terribly popular with these guys. I doubt it would be terribly popular with a lot of politicians that are looking to be reelected today in election day. But I, I'm thinking here as you're talking about these different privacy issues that 
the government could conceivably go in and say, Taylor, we saw you were visiting this questionable site sometime in the past, and um, by the way, uh, we're going to let the world know about that unless you change your political views. Is that something that could happen in America? Uh, certainly. And, you know, it's already happened when you think of uh, Valerie Plame a few years ago mm-hmm. when her husband issued... Um, was doing some research for the Bush administration, and they didn't necessarily like what he was, what he found, or what he was recommending. And whether it was retaliation or not, um, they released her name uh, to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that put her in jeopardy or not, whether that put her in danger or not, I don't know. But it, that kind of thing could happen more and more and more. Uh, they could get access to what books you buy. You know, maybe you bought the book, The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder, mm-hmm. and the next administration is a Republican administration, and, and, and they kind of want to see who the troublemakers are. Mm-hmm. And so they look up everyone who bought that book. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you take steps to protect your privacy, they're going to be able to know that. Mm-hmm. And, and they may exert some kind of, some kind of pressure. Maybe, and maybe it's just kind of a, a rogue individual in those administrations who takes it upon themselves to do that. It may not be any official action. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be just some other private individual who is able to um, siphon off your Internet activity and see what you're doing, doesn't like it, and so they, they, they lean on you like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly possible, and like I said, it has happened before. Well, we saw the dirty tricks of the Nixon administration back in, uh, you know, in the 70s, and now there's technology to make it much easier to do that sort of thing than, than it was then. You don't have to really go into wiretapping and, and sort of more difficult things, as you're saying. It's probably a lot easier now it's, to... Uh, just to let you know how easy it is, it's, it, there are buttons that you can download that do it for you. So if you've ever uh, downloaded something like Mozilla Firefox, mm-hmm. which is free open source, and it takes almost no skill and ability, that's about how difficult it is to wiretap um, the uh, Wi-Fi hotspots at Starbucks or at a hotel uh, and and things like that. It's something that almost anybody can do with about five minutes of of training. Let's talk a little bit about wealth protection. Uh, If we could, the government, uh, you know, as I just said, I believe is using... Uh, fiat money and has been using it since we since Nixon took us off the gold standard in seventy one to reallocate wealth. I mean, government has grown exponentially since then. Our debts and our credit markets have grown exponentially since then. Since there's no controls over the amount of money that's created. Um, any ideas how investors may be able to protect their wealth in this in this environment? Well, one of the things that um, is most disruptive to our privacy is our dependence on the government program of fiat currency. Mm-hmm. Um, dependence on any government program requires you to uh, sacrifice some of your privacy. And this uh, reliance on a fiat currency is kind of the, the last bastion that pretty much everyone has to adhere to, um, which is destroying that privacy and destroying the, the wealth of the individuals. Uh, using gold and silver bullion and, and, and bullion to engage in transactions uh, is the only kind of transaction that is really impossible um, to trace and so is the, therefore the most private because even cash has serial numbers and, and can be tracked to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but those kinds of transactions in gold and silver bullion can't be. 
Now, that said, when you do make a transaction, you still have to report uh, the cash value of any of those transactions for tax purposes or, or for other purposes. Uh, but using using bullion in everyday transactions or, or coins or, or whatever uh, of gold and silver or whatever uh, metal uh, that you want uh, is by far the most private way to exchange wealth. Okay, let's say that people start doing that. In other words, it's it's almost like you can use that as a barter in a barter system, right? You can take your gold coins or whatever and have the plumber fix your plumbing or, uh, I don't know, whatever the service or, or product you need. It's, it's very difficult. Of course, a lot of gold is not commonly accepted in stores. It's not really accepted, um, you know, in the, in the above-ground economy for the most part as a medium of exchange. Do you, um, do you, do you see, though, that that's, that that's coming? Do you believe that's something that's going to happen in the U.S.? I, I think it will. With, with the way that the U.S. dollar is being devalued and the risk of inflation or hyperinflation uh, in the near future, um, I, people are going to go to the safer and more liquid asset of, of gold or silver or platinum or whatever they can get their hands on. Um, plus, there's a lot of companies that will store the bullion for you and you can exchange it electronically. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's it's easy enough to get an app on your phone that will make those exchanges for you. So when you go to a restaurant, uh, you won't pay with your credit card anymore. You'll you'll be able to uh, exchange three grams of of gold or mm-hmm. an ounce of silver uh, for your your meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those kinds of systems they're they're in their infancy right now, but with with the way that the control of the fiat currencies is going, they will become bigger and more prominent, these, these alternate systems of payment, just like uh, the new wave of social networks are going to be more respectful of privacy and, and locked down rather than open and public. I would like to ask you about, we've only got a couple of minutes left here, but I would like to ask you uh, about a RFID chip. It's a chip that is being installed in, actually it's being installed in pets now, and, uh, and, and you know, so that their owners can track them down and find them if they're lost, or I guess they have medical information stored on these chips or implanted into the animal, into the pet. Uh, and I stopped by and talked to a person this summer that was that was promoting this um, this technology to people in my neighborhood and asked her if she thought this is something that might be imposed on people, that it might be a means of government tracking our movements and controlling us. And she thought it was something that was likely to, to happen in the near in the not too distant future. She thought maybe new infants would be required to have chips implanted. Do you have any ideas, uh, any thoughts uh, on that technology and the possibility for infringing on our liberties? Uh... Sure. RFID has actually been used on humans. It's uh, been voluntary use uh, up until this point. Uh, and I can see that some people might find it to be very convenient because it has a lot of information on it and they don't need to be carrying that information with them otherwise. Um, but um, there is definitely the risk that that information will be used against us or, or will be used kind of in a way that a lot of our information is used now, uh, collected and data mined and, uh, and just kind of used to find out more about us than we know ourselves. Um, however, I don't see RFIDs being implanted in individuals uh, by force 
uh, to be a real legitimate threat over the next uh, few years. Now, who knows what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years, uh, but I, I don't see that. Uh, I see the bigger threat being the RFIDs on the stuff that we have, uh, RFIDs in our clothes, in our shoes, in our watches, uh, because an RFID chip can be extremely small. It doesn't need a battery. Um, it's just kind of a, a dead chip, and then it's when a receiver uh, is within range, it will ping off of that RFID chip and pick up mm. all the information that's on it. Mm. Uh, and so uh, having them implanted in our bodies is probably not as big of a threat as having them in all of the other stuff that we have around. Mm -hmm. uh, because realistically, an RFID chip um, can be placed pretty much anywhere, and we wouldn't even see it uh, in the hem of our pants or in the sole of our shoe. Um, and so that, I think, is the bigger threat. I would like to ask you, and I'm going to do it uh, even though we're going to push our next guest back another minute or so, uh, offshore investing uh, and offshore, uh, is there a way for people to, uh, I don't want to say certainly not to avoid paying taxes, but perhaps to delay paying taxes? Are there legal means for people to protect their wealth by investing offshore, or is that something that's no longer available uh, to law-abiding citizens? Well, offshore investing certainly is available to law-abiding citizens. There are a lot of reporting requirements that you're going to have to follow. It doesn't mean that you don't pay taxes or don't have to pay taxes on things, but there are strategies available that you can either invest offshore and maybe delay paying income taxes until you repatriate that wealth uh, in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, in other cases, it's simply a way to uh, protect your wealth against the political risk of the United States. Um, so you can in invest in another country that's more stable, more solid, um, so that you're, you're not necessarily exposed to that U.S. dollar risk or even the U.S. political risk. I'm wondering if some of these topics will be covered in your upcoming book. Uh, yeah, pretty much everything we've talked about uh, is going to be in the book. Um, and, and I talk about these things on the website as well. Um, so, and again, the website is howtovanish.com, right? Howtovanish.com, correct. And uh, just one more quick question. Um, what about the potential for our government to tax away our retirement accounts? We're, our, our federal government's in big trouble financially. I think they're trying to inflate the debt away. But the taxes, we're having an election today. We'll see how that comes out. But taxes are likely to increase. I think a lot of people feel it is. Let's say that gold rises to extremely high levels uh, you know, as paper money becomes worthless. And those that own the gold will have an extraordinary amount of wealth compared to those that do not. Do you see the potential for that to be taxed away? Oh, certainly. Um, when more than 50% of the population is a net beneficiary, of taxes, that means that they receive more than they pay, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be more than willing to vote for those kinds of increases in taxes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I certainly see, and we've, we've have, we have a colored history with the way that we treat gold uh, in the United States. Yeah. And so uh, I, I certainly see that as a possibility, those who hold physical bullion, if the price goes through the roof, um, having taxes on unrealized uh, gains and things like that. I, I really do see that as a potential. 
Okay, Bill. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, today, uh, we are out of time. Now we've got to go to our next guest coming on real soon. But I do look forward to your new book coming out, uh, How to Vanish. It's going to be very interesting. And perhaps once it is published, we can have you back on to talk some more about it. But I think you probably will provide a lot of details that we didn't have time to uh, to get to today in today's show. So thank you very much uh, for being with us. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future. Thanks a lot, Jay. I enjoyed it. Uh, folks, don't go away. We're going to have Kim Harris coming back with us in just a minute after the break. Kim Harris is the president and CEO of Midlands uh, Resources, and she'll be uh, she'll be with us. I should say Midlands Minerals, and she'll be with us uh, on the other side of the break. So don't go away. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business try not to try too hard it's just a love you're listening
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I have with me Kim Harris. She is the president and CEO of Midlands Minerals, uh, which is a client of Jay's watch list, I should mention. Uh, Midland Minerals, uh, Midland Minerals trades uh, on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol MEX. Uh, has about 104 million shares outstanding. Currently trading at about 19 and a half to 20, 19 to 20 cents, somewhere in that range. So uh, we've had Kim on before, and it's a pleasure to have you back on again, Kim. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you for having me, Jay. Uh, Kim, I initially recommended your company to my subscribers uh, at that time. I was under the impression that you were planning to get into production fairly quickly, and I was looking forward to having some positive cash flows coming out of that to support exploration and development of your company rather than having to go out and issue new shares. At that time, you had about 53 million shares outstanding. You've pretty much doubled the number of shares outstanding. Your share price is more or less where it was, so your market cap has gone up a lot. But for people who bought the stock back in those days, they haven't really gained too much too much so far uh, compared to a lot of other gold stocks, which have risen fairly dramatically with the rise in the price of gold. Why should people continue to hold or perhaps maybe aggressively buy your shares at this point in time? I think they should aggressively buy the Midlands shares because the, they are currently uh, grossly undervalued. It's a good buy for people that are looking for a significant multiple in their returns, you know, buying at 20 cents. Now, just to go back to when we did the financing and the first time I came on your show, and at that time I think you were recommending us as um, a good buy, what we told the market was that we, were going, we had a drilling program that was 20,000 meters and that, that was announced in February. We set a target of our own of a million ounces on Cyan and Prasso that we felt we could achieve. We wanted to upgrade the resource once we had that million to at least 30% of it being in the category of indicated rather than inferred. We wanted to expand the size of the gold deposit on Cyan, and we wanted to do an airborne survey. Those are the five points that we emphasized when we were raising money. Mm-hmm. We were able to raise the funds based on that. You recommended a buy for Midlands uh, based on the 20,000 meters of drilling and the targets that we'd, we'd set up um, as achievable. But we have not yet completed our 20,000 meters of drilling, and I think the market has to uh, give us the opportunity to complete the drilling program and complete those things that we said we were going to do. So far, we're on track. And I, I want to talk about the, uh, the resource that we have now on Cyan of 600,000 ounces, more or less. Uh, so that's taking us closer to the million. I want to talk about that because the results that we've achieved so far are that we're halfway through the 20,000 meters, so we're still drilling. We've already got now close to 600,000 ounces towards the million that we set as a goal. We've already increased the indicated resource by 67%, from 192,000 to 322,000 ounces. The airborne survey that we did, we conducted, has now given us targets to drill that are much more specific 
than the soil anomaly that we were drilling on. And the interesting thing is that the 600,000 ounces we have are actually based on drilling a soil gold anomaly. This anomaly is 16 kilometers in length and about two and a half to three kilometers in width. So when you're looking at an area that size, where do you place the drill? It's pretty difficult to, to decide where to put the drill. And yet, using just the soil anomaly, we have been able to achieve 600,000 ounces. That's why we're hopeful that now that we have more specific targets that have come out of the airborne survey, we should be able to get better results. We should be able to get more ounces from the areas that we're now drilling more strategically than we were previously doing when we didn't have the third dimension of the airborne geophysics. So having said all that, I think your question related to production. Uh, the issue of production is one that obviously for us is, is a clear, clear option because Cian is a fully permitted property. It's a mining lease. It's got the infrastructure in place. It's got an existing plant that can be recommissioned in about six months at a price of somewhere between 15 and 20 million. Uh, but in order to make those expenditures and get a viability study going, in order to get the, the project financing for that plant, we would have to demonstrate that, that the deposit is economic and that it's mineable which means we really need to have the, the, around a million. It doesn't have to be exactly one million ounces, but closer to a million. I would say somewhere between 800,000 and a million. Then, then you're in the range where you can then do a scoping study and bring in you know, the, the, uh, the, the, other, the engineers now to look at just how mineable, the best way to mine that resource. And then at that time, you have a study, a feasibility study, which then can produce the financing from a bank because any bank giving us money to, to recommission the plant would be looking for a feasibility study. Now, we can do one fairly quickly because, you know, there was already a feasibility study done on this CN project. It's a past producer. So that part of it time-wise probably wouldn't be that time-consuming. But it's, it's a task that would need to be done before one can actually talk production. Cause, so it's a scoping study that we would need next. And before we can do that, we need a sizable uh, deposit there in order to do that, and I think that's achievable. We're on track as we see it, and with the new uh, targets that we have, we should be able to uh, to get to the results uh, a lot quicker. Okay, Kim, you mentioned your, your current 20,000-meter drill program, and about half of it, I think you said, is uh, has been completed. Do you believe once all the data is compiled from, uh, from that 20,000-meter drill program that you can get into that 800,000 to 1 million ounce range, or is it going to require more drilling? And if so, how much time is it going to take before you get to that million ounce target? We should be able to, um, to, to get to the million because, as I said, we've already got 600,000, so we're looking for 400,000 ounces more. Mm -hmm. And now we're drilling more, in a more targeted way because we've got the airborne geophysics now that's, that's helped us to, to, to carve out specific parts of that soil anomaly that we have that are more prospective than others. So we're expecting results to come a lot quicker now than before, and I, I will touch on on why the results, I think part of our price, the way it is now, is because we have not been able to come up with results as quickly as the market expected. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is uh, when we closed our financing in February, we were now able to sign a contract with the airborne geophysics company that was going to do the airborne survey for us, because prior to that we didn't have the funds to sign the contract. So they began flying over Cian and Prasso and Caniago uh, dur during March and April, which meant May and June, we were busy analyzing the data. 
July, August, we were busy doing the interpretation of that data and doing compilations of the geology, the geochemistry, and the geophysics to try and zero in on the targets that we would be drilling. And that task took a while to do because you have to work with the geo It's a whole team of people working together, and there was a lot of data. So that was the roadmap that we needed to, to now embark on the new drilling that we're doing. Now, it's a continuation of the 20,000 meters, but in a more targeted way. But what we had to do in the meantime was not continue to drill fast and furious through the 20,000 meters without a map. Mm-hmm. So we, we purposely scaled down the drilling, down from two drills that were doing uh, ten, two 10-hour shifts each to one drill, one diamond drill, doing one 10-hour shift. And so that slowed down the drilling dramatically. And we did that deliberately in order to preserve the cash. We didn't want to drill through, keep plowing through without a map because that would have not made a lot of sense. Now, the result of that was that because this drill was doing 30 meters a day with the one with the one shift, we couldn't get any results out quickly enough because it was very slow to complete a hole. And at the time, we were drilling under the pit, and each hole was averaging between 250 meters to 365 meters. So if you do the math, then you'll see that you know it would take quite a while to drill to yeah. complete one hole. That was deliberate, and we had no choice because any other any other action on our part would have chewed up the money pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at the end of the day, what we did was take a hit on the, on the price, on the market. People were saying, well, where are the, where the results? There's, nothing was coming from us, mm-hmm. and what was coming was too slow. Yeah. And so um, that, that is the explanation for why the price was the way it was through April, May, June, July, and I think in August, I, I believe you, you wrote an article about us at that time. You were taking notice as well. Uh, concerned about the price. But th- that was the issue there. So we came out of all of that. We've turned the corner. The drills are turning now. We're back to uh, uh, 40 hours of drilling per day with, with uh, sufficient rigs out there. And we still have cash in the bank. So we came out of all of that with $5 million still in the bank. We're able to complete our 20,000 meters. We're able to drill the new targets that have been identified by the airborne survey without going back to the market. And we're, we're able to follow through and infill and reach the targets that we've set with the, fu- the, the funds that we currently hold. Well, Kim, when do you think um, you, you are going to have to raise some more capital, no doubt, as you move forward? Um, you know, you're gonna, you mentioned you're gonna, you, um, going to, uh, uh, I guess, recommission the mill again. Is that going to cost you some money? How much? And, and how are you going to raise that? Well, to, to recommission the mill, we're looking at between 15 and 20 million. Uh, in order to do that, we should have a feasibility study so we can have it financed by a bank or uh, some other means of project financing other than equity, because there's no need to do equity if it's a plant, uh, it can self-finance. So it, it, that's why we go back to the million ounces so within that range, 800,000 to a million. Once we reach that, that level, then we can kick in a scoping study and a quick feasibility study on that that then gives us the ammunition and, and, the, and the, what we can take to the bank to get the financing because they will be asking for you know, what is the plan, what's your production, and all of that. The engineering has to be uh, in that feasibility study. Of course. And, Kim, have you had discussions with the financial institutions so far? And if so, are they uh, likely to require you to sell some gold forward? 
Well, actually, a lot of them are looking at, uh, we've been in discussions with um, South African banks, and their interest is more in seeing South African engineering companies being hired because, because they, have, they do have programs where they support their companies when they go into other countries to do work. So that's one avenue where, where funds can be made available if, if you hire a, com- a company, a qualified engineering company, from certain countries. Mm-hmm. I believe Canada has similar programs through the, uh, the Export uh, Development Corporation that you know, financing can come through there if we are using the services of the Canadian All right, Kim, I'm, I'm sorry. We are out of time, unfortunately. Uh, I do think you have a very interesting project, and you've got a lots of exploration potential, so we're going to keep our eyes on you uh, going forward and maybe have you back again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Thank you, Kim, Thank for you being with much, us. Kim. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to have Roger Wiegand with me in just another minute for the wrap-up on today's show. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Don't go away. We'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech. 
Black Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. We're here for the wrap-up today. I've got my uh, partner, Roger Wiegand, with me, uh, the author of Trader Tracks. Welcome, Roger. Welcome, Jay. Good to hear from you. Uh, Roger, before the break, we were just talking. You think the FOMC meetings tomorrow is more important than the elections. Why? Well, um, it's going to be the language, I think, that they come with. Uh, the bankers, investors, and those involved in this stuff watch the language and the words very carefully because they're looking for clues as to what Bernanke's going to do. I think most everybody in the market, especially the bond traders right now, are persuaded that he's going to come with at least $500 billion before the end of the year. I think, Jay, that uh, he's going to do the same for every quarter for the for the next three quarters into next year. Oh. And I that's think $2 that, trillion, dollars, Roger. That's $2 trillion, and I think once he gets past one and a half, he's in trouble. Okay, so we're deflating. Uh, we are debasing the currency, which is the reason most people think gold is rising so high. What do you see for gold? Gold is going to continue up. Um, we see rallies all the way through to March, but we also do see a double top on gold at either 1387, perhaps punching through to about 1450 before Thanksgiving. Traders should remember that the 23rd of November, uh, the options expire on the December gold and silver options. So that's a key day when some selling can start. Mm-hmm. So what, what we look between now and then, we're looking for a metals rally. Up to as high as 1450 by Thanksgiving, you say? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we could see that could be the high for the year then, probably? That could be the high for the year. Okay. Uh, and keep then in mind, our previous high is 1387.50, so we've got to break through that one first. Do you like silver more than gold at this point, Roger? Yes, I do. The pressure is on silver. I'm just amazed. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact there's a big lawsuit against J.P. Morgan Chase and HSBC for shorting silver. I think they're backing off a little bit because too many people are watching them. Mm. Consequently, silver's free to run, and the pressure's on the buy side. And uh, what is your take on energy these days, on oil, for example? Well, oil was up today considerably, $84. A lot of people say, well, uh, that's on shortages, but it's not really. It's on inflation. Inflation Mm -hmm. is beginning to bite both in food and in energy, uh, in India, they're withholding uh, sugar cane to get higher prices that are already high. Uh, all the grains are way up. Uh, oil is starting to rise again on inflation, despite the fact they've got big reserves. So the whole commodity section is on a roll to the, to the buy side. Okay, Roger, when we talk about inflation, we have to think about the dollar. What, just very briefly, in another 10 or 15 seconds, what does the dollar look like on the dollar index right now? Well, it's weak. It's down about eight-tenths of one percent today. The next support, main support, 75 and a half, then 74 and a half, and then 72. I look for the dollar to sink for the rest of the month, but not dramatically, just one or two points. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. That's about all that we have time for today. Actually, uh, thank you, Roger, for being with us again. Sorry again for shortcutting you, shortchanging you, I should say, in in terms of your time. Uh, that's what you get for coming on at the end of the session, I guess. But in any event, uh, thanks for being with us, folks. Next week, we're going to have our special guest is Wendell Cox. Uh, he will talk about why so many people are leaving my state, that's the state of New York. And we're going to have Joe uh, Eskenzi, Esken, Eskenanzi, I'm sorry, I butchered his name, Joe Eskenzi, 
uh, who will talk about San Francisco, the pension funds there, and what's driving and how they are driving that city into the financial grave. So those are not happy stories, but we think it's better that we know and see what's coming uh, so we can prepare as best we can for that. Well, in closing, I want to thank again the staff at Voice America, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colombe, the operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. I want to thank all you folks for making this show logistically possible. Thanks again to our sponsors for making it financially uh, possible, and thanks to each of you for listening and making this the number one show on the Voice America business channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.